Well, please turn with me in your Bible to the Gospel according to Mark, chapter 2, beginning at verse 13. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 2, verses 13 to 17. Thus says the word of God. Then he went out again by the sea, and all the multitude came to him, and he taught them. As he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, Follow me. So he arose and followed him. Now it happened, as he was dining in Levi's house, that many tax collectors and sinners also sat together with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many, and they followed him. And when the scribes and Pharisees saw him eating with the tax collectors and sinners, they said to his disciples, How is it that he eats and drinks with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Well, nobody likes tax collectors. Having a tax collector summon you as you passed by in the ancient world would invoke similar feelings as it does today when the IRS knocks on your door for an audit. But in Matthew's day, abhorrence for tax collectors was even greater than it is in our day because Believe it or not, they were actually worse than the IRS. Our text strikes at the root of our resentments. It slaughters our self-righteousness, and it adorns the character of Christ as the friend of penitent sinners. Well, consider in the first place that here a tax collector is called. A tax collector is called. Look at verse 14 again. As Jesus passed by, it says, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, follow me, and he followed him. Well, this account of the calling of Levi is short. It's straight to the point. But it's a momentous event that not only transformed the life of Levi forever, but set in motion a course of history that would impact the world for all time and eternity. This verse tells us four things about this disciple. His name, his occupation, the word by which he was called, and his response. All within one short little verse. Well, in the first place, consider his name. Levi was a distinctively Jewish name. And so we know that this man was a Hebrew. His namesake comes from the son of Jacob and Leah. And at its root, it literally means to be joined, to be joined. We see that in Genesis 29, 34, which says she conceived again, this is Leah, and bore a son and said, now this time, my husband will become attached to me because I have borne him three 
sons. Therefore, his name was called Levi, it says. My husband will be attached to me. So she called her son Levi, which means to be joined, to be attached. Well, the descendants of Jacob's son Levi were chosen to be priests. And so Numbers 18.2 states, Also bring with you your brethren of the tribe of Levi, the tribe of your father, and note this, that they may be joined with you and serve you while you and your sons serve while you and your sons are with you before the tabernacle of witness. May they join the people of God. May they join the Lord their God. May they be an integral part of the covenant community of the people of God in order to mediate between the people and God as their priests. Joined. Integrated. Levites were to attach themselves to the people of God in order to serve the Lord on their behalf. That's what they were called to do. But this Levi in Mark chapter 2 had not done that. In fact, he did the opposite. He betrayed his namesake. He abandoned the Lord. He forsook his Jewish brethren. And as a tax collector, his devout brethren would have considered him to be an apostate. In fact, to be foremost among apostates as one who had fallen away as a quote-unquote untouchable. Yet this Levi had his heart subdued by the irresistible magnetism of Messiah. In Mark 3.18, he goes on to be listed as one of the twelve apostles, where he appears under the name Matthew. And we know that this Levi was Matthew because in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 9 and verse 9, we have the precise parallel account which reads, as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a, name, a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. So he arose and followed him. Same precise account, same historical occurrence. But whereas Mark calls him Levi, the Gospel of Matthew calls him Matthew. Well, Matthew is a common name in the first century. And it was common for a first century Jew to have a surname, in fact. We see that, for instance, in the case of Peter who also went by the names Simon and Cephas. Perhaps Jesus renamed Levi after he called him, just like he did Peter and James and John. Whatever the case, the name change is significant because it suggests that Levi got a new identity in association with Christ. When the Lord called him to discipleship, his old life was gone. His sins were buried. His name would no longer be a reminder of how he had disjoined himself from the people of God. It would no longer be reminiscent of his former apostasy, but now his name would remind him of his new hope, his newfound identity, and his new mission in the kingdom of God. And so he is henceforth reckoned by the name Matthew, which means gift 
of God, gift of God. The Lord Jesus, so quickly, so immediately, so powerfully, as he just passed by, transformed this notorious sinner, this treacherous traitor of his own people into a gift of God for the church. And Matthew is the gift that keeps on giving because he became the author of the gospel account that bears his name to this day. Well, his occupation when Jesus found him was that of a tax collector. The text says that he was sitting at the tax office. This was a booth by some prominent pathway or roadside in Capernaum where Matthew sat at a table with his ledgers and pen collecting taxes from passers-by. Jews did not collect in the Roman Empire the annual poll and land taxes that were exacted by Caesar because that was done only by Roman officials. And so Matthew would have been collecting customs taxes on transported goods that were moving to and from this port city. And we know that this was a city that had a substantial commercial enterprise going on among a number of things, but the most prominent of them was the fishing industry. He would have been taxing fish and fishermen. Hence Peter and Andrew and James and John, whose company he joined. He would have been working as a middleman by the hated Herod Antipas, who was Tetrarch of Galilee, son of Herod the Great, who slaughtered the infants of Bethlehem. The Herods were notorious for their villainy and their tyranny and their wickedness. And the way tax collectors got into this trade was by purchasing franchises from Herod. They were quite similar to franchises in our day. If you purchase a franchise from a fast food restaurant or something like that. And so Herod would have each jurisdiction of his domain organized so that a minimal revenue would be collected annually from each region according to its income and its population. And it was a set amount of money that Herod expected every year. So the tax collector would make his profits by exacting more from the people than what Herod required. And whatever surplus they could milch from others would be straight into their pocket as their profit. Hence the vo vocation of the tax collector attracted heartless, greedy crooks, scoundrels, black sheep, who had no quarrel of conscience in conniving and lying to get their way. And they made large fortunes through extortion and oppression. Many times they would just simply make up the quantity of revenue that was due to the authorities in order to glean from that. Tax collectors tended to be very wealthy through dishonest gain. And they did it by fleecing their fellow Jews. So they were considered traitors. Tax collectors were viewed, therefore, not as generally moral Jews who once in a while violated the Torah, but their whole profession and lifestyle was one of flagrant disregard for the commandments of God. 
They built their fortunes on lies and oppression and wickedness. Further, many Jews, no surprise, were reluctant to pay taxes. Of course, they didn't like being extorted, but they were also under a system of double taxation. They paid taxes to Rome as well as to the Herodian dynasty and to the Jewish nation and temple complex. Ancient records that have been discovered indicate that some Jews paid as much as 40% of their income in taxes. And since nobody liked to pay taxes, the tax collectors would surround themselves with bands of hired thugs, enforcers, who were likewise outcasts of society. Hence all of Matthew's friends mentioned in verse 15. Thus the tax collectors and their friends were the categorical sinners, the delinquents, the rascals, the expatriates, the riffraff of the town, the kind that associated with prostitutes, thieves, and murderers. And these bands of henchmen would not only be the bullies and enforcers of the extortionistic tax collectors, but they would also disseminate among the villages and they would be the eyes and ears of the tax collectors, the spies, as it were, throughout the village, making sure that nobody was hiding goods or circumventing their taxes. But what's more... Tax collectors were especially despised by devout Jews because they were seen as literal traitors of Israel who had committed treason. Tax collectors were collaborators with Gentiles, with the dogs. They were allied with Rome, and the Jews abhorred Roman dominance. It was an extension of their captivity as they saw it. And it was contrary to the Abrahamic promise that stated that the land belonged to them and not to Herod and the Edomites and not to Rome and the Gentiles. And so the Pharisees had effectively managed to expel all tax collectors from the synagogue community. They were shunned. The Jew who collected taxes was seen as a disgrace to his family he was disqualified as a judge or witness in court. And anything he touched, including a house, was rendered unclean. And since a revenue was gotten from robbery, as they reckoned it, Jews were not allowed to receive any money from a tax collector. Even the poor were strictly forbidden to receive alms from tax collectors. And although the famous rabbis Hillel and Shammai, who were well known in the days of Christ, disagreed on about everything they debated, they agreed in their view of tax collectors, and they both agreed that it was fitting for Jews to lie to tax collectors, and that they could do so with impunity. And so that's what Matthew was, a notorious sinner. Yet notice his calling and response in verse 14. Jesus said to him, follow me, and he arose and followed him. Simple words that reveal the omniscience of Christ, who knew that Matthew wanted to follow him. Now Matthew was a resident of Capernaum. 
Capernaum was the base where Jesus had set up his ministry. He had already spent a fair amount of time teaching there, performing miracles there. This is where Peter's mother-in-law was healed. This is where the paralytic was healed. This is where he cleansed the leper. And so Matthew, no doubt, had heard about the Lord Jesus Christ and possibly even heard him for himself prior to this time. And yet, he didn't make the break with his vocation and his office in order to follow Christ. And here he is sitting at his tax booth. And the Lord Jesus Christ knows what's in the heart of Matthew. He knows that Matthew's penitent. He knows that Matthew wants to follow him. And so, just passing by, he calls out to him, Matthew, follow me. And he arose and followed him. These words, follow me, akaluthe moi, in the Greek, they're theologically loaded in the Gospel of Mark. And in this Gospel, these words are practically synonymous with saving faith. Following Christ in this Gospel depicts not just believing something about him, but submitting to his lordship and his teachings and embarking on a lifestyle of discipleship. Jesus extended to Matthew the same call that we saw extended to the four fishermen in chapter 1. Peter and Andrew and James and John. Follow me. Same precise words where it says they left their nets, they left their boats, they left their business. James and John left their father in the boat and they followed him immediately. And so Matthew joins their company to be numbered among the twelve. And once Matthew made his break with his tax booth, there was no going back. Not ever. Fishermen could possibly go back to their former trade. There's always more fish in the sea that you could go back and catch. But not tax collectors, especially not ones that join themselves with a rabbi to practice Torah. The tax booth itself would have been immediately assumed by some covetous vulture who desired to usurp that position so he could glean the riches and fortunes for himself. And so Matthew embarked on a permanent rupture with his past life, and he cast his whole lot and hope in the future in the Lord Jesus Christ and in the future that Jesus could give him. Again, we see here a radical leap of faith, a forsaking of all to follow Christ. And this was no easy believism. This was a costly surrendering of self to assume a life of self-denial, persecution, and cross-bearing. This was not a quick and easy conversion, but it was a death and resurrection. Death to Matthew's self. Death to his affluence, death to his riches and luxuries and fleshly indulgences, and resurrection unto a new identity and calling in the kingdom of God. It's like Paul said, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things passed away. Behold, all things have become new. So as Jesus calls this tax collector, we see embedded within the narrative of this one single verse an illustrious display of the reality of salvation by grace through faith alone. 
And that's what Matthew means, gift of God. Gifts are unmerited, granted not in accordance with debt or what is owed, but solely by grace. And that's what Matthew is. He's a token of God's grace. Upon meeting Jesus, he becomes a testimony. And more than a testimony, he becomes a permanent existential embodiment that declares that God's grace abounds to the chief of sinners. But the Lord's display of grace doesn't end with Matthew. It goes further. And the text goes on to show that it escalates to a whole new unprecedented level. And so notice in the, first, in the second place how sinners are countenanced, how they're countenanced, how they're fellowshipped with. Verse 15, now it happened as he was dining in Levi's house that many tax collectors and sinners also sat together with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many and they followed him. Well, it was scandalous enough for a rabbi to call a tax collector to follow him. But then Jesus goes further, intentionally escalating the provocation and offense to the Pharisees and their scribes. He enters the forbidden territory of Matthew's unclean home in Capernaum, and he fellowships with a bunch of what the Pharisees consider to be categorical sinners. Well, the joy of salvation that burst into Matthew's soul led him to host a feast of celebration. This was similar to what happened to Zacchaeus in Luke 19. When Jesus called him, it says he made haste and received him into his home joyfully. There was a celebration. And in the parable of the prodigal son, when the son returns to his father's house, the father kills the fatted calf and says, let us eat and be merry. Well, the text here in Mark indicates that this was no ordinary meal. It says that many, many tax collectors and sinners were present. And then it says again, for there were many. Repeats that twice. The many suggest that this is an extraordinary event. Matthew invited his comrades and friends and acquaintances, and they were all social outcasts. He literally threw a party in celebration of his being called by the Lord Jesus. Well, the New King James Version says that Jesus was dining in Levi's house. He was dining there. But the Greek word is more precise than that. It's katakemai which means to lie down or recline. Mark has already used this word twice in the narrative with reference to Peter's mother-in-law lying in bed and the paralytic who was lying on his mat before he was healed. Jesus wasn't just sitting down to eat. He was reclining. The Greek indicates that the sinners around him were also reclining. They were all reclining. Well, the tables of the Jews weren't like ours. They were low to the ground, and there were no chairs around them. Everybody sat on the floor, 
And for ordinary meals, the Jews would sit straight on the floor in an upright position at the table. It was a basically functional position that allowed them to eat and to get on their way without wasting much time. But for special feasts and festivals, they would put pillows and cushions all around the table and everybody would recline on them and lay back on them and take their time eating and drinking and laughing and talking together. They would get out the choice hors d'oeuvres and the, the choice wine and they would feast together for hours. And so Jesus isn't just eating with sinners. He's feasting and fellowshipping with them at this celebration party that Matthew is hosting. And they're all flocking around the Lord Jesus. They are drawn to him. Just like Peter and Andrew and James and John and Matthew, they find in Christ this irresistible, glorious beauty and magnetism about him. And they're, they're, they just, they're drawn to him. And he's receiving them with kind-hearted conversation and warm-hearted hospitality. Well, normally the man who would host a feast, who would hold the feast, who would put the feast on, he would be considered the host, the formal host of the feast. And many times he would sit at the head of the table, which was ordinarily to the left of a U-shaped table. You might have seen that uh, famous painting by Leonardo da Vinci of the Last Supper, where Jesus is sitting in the middle of the table, and it's a rectangle, rectangular table. That's not how the tables were. They were U-shaped tables, and everybody sat around the outside of the table so the servers could enter the inside of the U to continue to serve bread and, and, and food items. And so the host or the guest of honor, would sit at the left side of that table. But it would be said that the guests, in describing such a scene, would be eating with the man who was the host. And that would have been Matthew in this case. But it doesn't say that Jesus sat with Matthew but rather that many tax collectors and sinners also sat together with Jesus and his disciples. It is emphasizing the central role of Jesus in this feast. And so he would have probably been sitting at that left-hand side of the table as not only the guest of honor, but also recognized as the host of this feast with Matthew somewhere else in the position of a subordinate. But however it was set up, the text suggests that Jesus assumed the central place, the place of the host of the feast. And this is significant for anybody that knows their Old Testament. Consider what was happening in the light of a whole Bible theology. Salvation has burst forth. Messiah is here. The king is coming in his kingdom. And the king is feasting in a home with the reconciled people of God. Messiah and his friends were feasting with Matthew. And the Messiah himself was God incarnate. And so these sinners are feasting with God incarnate. And feasting with God was a part of the Messianic hope. 
It started when God appeared in human form to Abraham with two angels. And Genesis 19.3 says that Abraham made them a feast. He made them a feast. And they ate and drank with Abraham. And then when the glory of God appeared over the mountain of God at Sinai, Moses and Aaron and the 70 elders of Israel went up. And Exodus 24.11 says that they saw God and they ate and drank. They ate and drank with God. That was a covenantal inauguration meal celebrating the theocratic kingdom fellowship, this bond of covenantal communion that God, by his gracious condescension, had enabled his people to enter into. Fast forward to the time of David, who was a type of Christ. And when David, as the king of Israel, hosted his daily royal feasts, he invited, astonishingly, the lame Mephibosheth to his table. And during that time, Mephibosheth, as a son of the wayward Saul, was an outcast in Israel because he represented the dynasty of the apostate sinful Saul, who acted as an adversary to David. Lame people were not ordinarily permitted to approach the table of the king, much less the son of an antagonistic rival dynasty. But David brought the outcast to his table. David hosted him with royal hospitality day after day after day, showing extravagant grace. And that was a type of Jesus hosting sinners as a part of his messianic banquet. But this pattern became an express prophecy in Isaiah 25, which is located right in the midst of what we call Isaiah's little apocalypse. Because Isaiah is foretelling what will happen when God brings his redemptive plan for the world to fulfillment. Well, listen to verses 6 to 8 of Isaiah 25. It says, And in this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all people a feast of choice pieces, a feast of wine on the lees, of fat things full of marrow, of well-refined wine on the lees. And he will destroy on this mountain the surface of the covering cast over all people and the veil that is spread over all nations. That's talking about him redeeming the nations by reversing the curse. And then it says he will swallow up death forever and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. The rebuke of his people he will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. He'll take away the rebuke of his people. His people were would be under the rebuke of God during the Babylonian captivity when they were experiencing the consequences of the curse of the law that they had violated. And so Isaiah is talking about redemption, about the restoration of God's people from their bondage and captivity. And he describes it as a royal banquet hosted by the Lord in which the sinful nation feasts with God in the intimacy of table fellowship. You recall Isaiah chapter 1 where it says, Ah, sinful people laden with iniquity, 
covered in sin from head to toe. Well, it's that sinful nation that here he's saying he will redeem and he will feast with them. And so Isaiah teaches also that this redemption that he's foretelling in chapter 25 would be brought about when the time of eschatology had dawned when God visits his people in his kingdom and Isaiah's prophecies correlate it with the coming of Messiah. The coming of Messiah. And it's not that Jesus feasting with sinners in Mark 2 is the final eternal fulfillment of this, but it was an initial step in salvation history meant to point to who he was and what he came to do. And so it resounds. Jesus feasting with sinners and the house of Matthew the tax collector resounds with messianic motifs. He's fulfilling prophecy. <laughs> Therefore, when Jesus feasts with these tax collectors and sinners, it's much more than just a gesture of kindness. It's more than an evangelistic strategy. It's the Messiah as God incarnate, restoring his wayward people, extending forgiveness of sin and gracious divine fellowship to the exiled outcasts of Israel. And that's why Mark says at the end of verse 15, there were many and they followed him. Same word is used for Matthew and the many sinners when it says they all followed him. The sinners did the same thing that Matthew and Peter and Andrew and James and John did. They all followed him, which means they believed in him. And on the basis of their faith, he assures them, just as he did to the paralytic, that their sins were forgiven. Only here, instead of saying it with words, he showed it with action at this royal banquet feast and made them to experience this reality of divine forgiveness and fellowship through the intimacy of table fellowship. The castaways were brought back into the net. The prodigals were brought back home. The untouchables experienced the ineffable embrace of the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And so they're all enjoying a messianic kingdom banquet where sinners are restored and reconciled to fellowship with God. The grace of heaven through the Lord Jesus Christ is intruding into the domestic territory of hell right in the house of Matthew the tax collector as Jesus comes in his kingdom claiming what rightfully belongs to him. But the Pharisees, they fail to grasp the significance of all this. And instead, they're scandalized by Jesus' association with sinners. And so, notice in the third place, the religious folk are outraged. Verse 16. When the scribes and Pharisees saw him eating with the tax collectors and sinners, they said to his disciples, how is it that he eats and drinks with tax collectors and sinners? Well, that might strike us at first glance as a simple question, a curiosity, but it wasn't that. 
It was an expression of outrage, of shock, of resentment, of disgust. In their mind, no self-respecting rabbi would have ever done such a thing. If a tax collector in this day even tried to follow a rabbi, he would have been shunned. A rabbinic commentary on the book of Exodus called Melkilta Amalek de Rabbi Yishmael, of the Rabbi Ishmael, says the following, Let not a man ever associate with a wicked person, not even for the purpose of bringing him near to the Torah. Total shunning. Well, the very name Pharisee means separated. They were set apart from the common folk who they called the people of the land. The people of the land. Those people were the categorical sinners because they had no zealous observance for the traditions of the law as taught by the Pharisees and their scribes. The Pharisees prided themselves in praying things like Psalm 26.9, which says, Do not gather my soul with sinners. And Psalm 104.35, which says, May sinners be consumed from the earth, and the wicked be no more. Of course, they applied these texts wrongfully, not out of holy affections, but out of self-righteous scorn. One scholar by the name of William Lane explains, quote, the Pharisees and their scribes were the spiritual descendants of the Hasadim, who had distinguished themselves by zeal for observance of the law in spite of oppressive measures by Antiochus IV Epiphanes. That was during the intertestamental time. He says they were deeply devoted to the law and strictly governed their own life by the interpretation passed down in the scribal tradition. They criticized Jesus because he failed to observe the distinction between the righteous and the sinners, which was an essential component of their piety. In their banquets, the Pharisees attempted to maintain an exclusive fellowship in order to avoid ritual impurity from contact with others who maintained the traditions less strictly. End quote. The Mishnah, which is a collection of Jewish oral traditions that came to be written down and preserved to this day, states the following. He that undertakes to be trustworthy, and by trustworthy he, they mean a, a teacher, a rabbi, may not be the guest of one of the people of the land. He may not. It also says that a rabbi, quote, should not recline at table in the company of ignorant persons, end quote. And in Mishnah Sanhedrin 3.3, it describes who these categorical sinners are who are disqualified from fellowship with the religious elite. It says they may not be witnesses in court. And it says these are Gamblers, these are the categories of the sinners. Gamblers, extortioners, people who race flying doves for sport, violators of the Sabbath, thieves, people who take things by force, shepherds who trespass on other people's property with their flocks, and get this, collectors of duty and contractors 
of the government. There it is. That would be tax collectors. There was utter disdain for them. But Jesus wasn't violating the Torah at all. He was intentionally violating the scribal traditions, these extra-biblical traditions that had no basis in the word of God. And he was doing so as a prophet who was calling the Pharisees to repentance and reformation, to follow the true teachings of the word of God. When David had repented in Psalm 51, he prayed, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. Then he says, Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners shall be converted to you. There it is in the word of God, what Jesus was doing. He was teaching transgressors and leading them back to reconciliation with God. Their traditions contradicted it. Proverbs 24.11 says, deliver, using a Hebrew word there that literally means pull out, rescue, save those who are drawn toward death and hold back those stumbling to the slaughter. Daniel 12.3 says, those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament and those who turn many to righteousness will shine like the stars forever and ever. That's what Jesus was doing. And apparently, these Pharisees never got the point of the book of Jonah. Because like Jonah, who was more concerned for his little plant than he was for the lives of the Ninevites, these Pharisees cared more for their traditions than they did for the souls of image bearers of God. Lord, have mercy. May God save us from our self-righteousness, and spiritual pride. Well, notice finally in the text that we have a Savior for the sin-sick. Verse 17. When Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And Jesus, when he says this, isn't talking about the command to repent and who that command is extended to because scripture clearly says that God calls all people everywhere to repent. Of course, Jesus called everyone to repent. He quite clearly commands the Pharisees to repent numerous times in the Gospels. But here the Lord is quoting a proverb that was well known in its day, we've uncovered literature that contains this proverb contemporaneous with the Lord Jesus. And it would have resonated with the Pharisees. They knew this proverb well, and it contains a maxim, a principle. And the sense of it here is this. Jesus didn't come to gather into the kingdom of God men like the Pharisees who were satisfied with their own false righteousness but he gathers those who recognize their sinful condition and know that they need to be saved. And that's why it's so important that we talk about sin. Painful as it is, this is why we need to confess our sins regularly, even daily. Because the moment we think that we have no sin, sin that should be deeply felt, lamented, repugnated, 
warred, warred against, confessed. The day we think that we don't have such sin is the day that we think we're good enough without the Lord Jesus Christ. The smallest stain of sin on the day of your best behavior has enough evil in it to condemn you for eternity. And the more we grow in grace, the more we will realize and feel our need for the Lord Jesus and his priestly office as our great physician and savior. Psalm 32, 5 says, I acknowledged my sin to you, and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. We see in that psalm the solicitude of the psalmist to pray and confess his sins to God, the willingness and graciousness of God to freely forgive all his sins, and then the clear declaration of the assurance of pardon that is extended to those who, forget, who, who, who confess their sin. Oh, brethren, today's New Year's Day. And about this time of year, we make resolutions. But how many of us make resolutions only to break them? Surveys show that some 80% of resolutions are never kept. Do you know why? Because we're sinners. We're just like Matthew and his friends. <laughs> we're far from perfect at keeping our resolves to do good. And so can I suggest to you that you make a different kind of resolution this year? Instead of saying, I'm going to be a better person in this way or that way, Instead of trying to pick yourself up by your moral bootstraps, how about making the following prayer your resolution? And let's pray this together and we'll close with this prayer. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, help me this year to resolve to recognize who I am with all my failures and weaknesses and sins but to proportionately recognize who you are for me as my savior, as the sufficient satisfaction for my every need and desire. Help me, Lord, to be less like myself when left to my own devices, but to be more like you. Grant that I may grow in appreciation for your love, precious savior, and also that I may know a greater measure of the fellowship of your grace in the gospel. And grant me, Lord, the resolve to always confess my sins to you, that I may enjoy the banquet of your grace and fellowship with you and Matthew and his friends at your table in the kingdom of God. Amen.